Hello and welcome to episode number nine of Making Media Now, a filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Today I'll be speaking with award-winning journalist, filmmaker, author, and podcast host, Michelle Mitchell. Michelle is best known for her on-camera reporting for PBS and CNN Headline News, and her documentaries, Haiti, Where Did the Money Go?, and The Uncondemned, a film that examines the first trial that prosecuted rape as a war crime and an act of genocide. Most recently, Michelle created and hosts the podcast, The Cocktail Conversations. Each episode is a racy, raucous, and informed deep dive into the topics you want to talk about or are afraid to ask. Here's Michelle describing what The Cocktail Conversations podcast is all about. I'm Michelle Mitchell. So why the cocktail conversations? Well, for one thing, I am truly deeply concerned with the level of discourse in this country, how we are talking or in most cases, not talking with one another. It wasn't always like this. It actually was possible once upon a time to disagree on policy and on issues and ideas and not insult each other or threaten to kidnap or kill each other. It was really nice. I called what happened over the last 20 years the anger industrial complex. And a lot of people and companies have made a lot of money off of sowing this kind of discord. Well, it's not very interesting, right? And you know that this is true. So don't at me or what about. The fact is, we've got really big challenges ahead. And whether we like it or not, we're all in this together. So I decided to do something about it. And I decided to do something that I've actually done before. And that is create a conversation among different people with different ideas and give them all a glass of wine or a cocktail. No talking heads. I mean, you can't see us anyway. It's a podcast. So that means no screaming, no yelling, just a group of smart, concerned people who you actually want to have a beer with. And it's totally cool if that happens to be a root beer. And since a conversation that doesn't go anywhere is not particularly satisfying, this one does. Oh, we've got goals. So join me and 120 of my closest friends as this season we take on the value gap. We're going to talk about what it is, what to do about it. So grab a cocktail and your thoughts and join us. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers of all stripes with its array of benefits and services. Visit FC at filmmakerscollab.org to learn more. And if you're enjoying these conversations, please remember to subscribe, review, and share. And now, here's my chat with Michelle Mitchell. Michelle Mitchell. Welcome to Making Media Now. Where does this podcast find you? I am in a very chilly Napa Valley right now, which is where I've um, basically been sheltering in place for most of the year. It was supposed to be kind of a temporary thing. And then all of a sudden <laughs> we got stuck. All right. So, well, let's compare chili. What's your us. What is your Napa Valley chili this morning? Okay. You know what? I live for, I, I, you know, and I, I still live in, in New York city, but for 24 years, I've been in New York city and I've been in Washington DC before that I went to college in Chicago. I understand what 50 degrees in New York city is. Yeah. This is super different. Like at 50 degrees in Napa, it is 
chilly, but that's why it had all that wonderful Cabernet gets made, right? It's because it gets really cold at night. Last night it was below freezing. So there you go. <laughs> Have you noticed on the West Coast, I, I lived on the West Coast for a while. I think that there was a winter that I barely put on a jacket, but have you ever noticed on the West Coast how people just love it when the temperature drops below 70 so they can break out their North Face? Oh yeah. I mean, I grew, up in Orange, I grew up in Orange County. Like it was a big deal. Like, okay, like, Oh, we better put on our ski jacket. It's 60 degrees. So, but I, I really, I've, I feel like I've been in some pretty cold places. This is a, a, a different kind of cold. It's like a damp cold again, great for grapes, but you know, it's, it's kind of like the desert when the sun goes down, it's cold. Absolutely. So if you come Absolutely. out here to visit, which I hope people do eventually again, uh, bring some scarves. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, yeah. And I think everybody looks forward to having to pack for travel. Again. Right. <laughs> we, we're recording this conversation on New Year's Eve, Eve, uh, 2020 year of the plague. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, cast your memory back 365 days or so. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of 2019, where you, when you were looking ahead to 2020, what were you thinking the year was going to look like for you? What, what did you have planned uh, and, and how did it all work out? I love this question and I will tell you why. Because at this time last year, I was putting the finishing touches on what would become a pitch taken um, of the cocktail conversations taken to Quibi, which happened the first week of February. And Quibi very quickly said no. And what they said was, we aren't going to do anything remotely controversial this year. We don't want to offend our new audience. Interesting. To which I said, okay, uh, it's, you know, it's 2020. Everything's going to be controversial this year. Number one, number two, the first season of the cocktail conversations was to take on this idea of uh, the value gap, gender equity. And I was like, how is gender equity controversial? And number three, what new audience? And when they said no, I said, you know, what? I'm going to do it as a podcast and I will see you on the flip side. You're going to want it as a TV show. And I would just want to point out that we're out and Quibi's not. Yeah, very true. Yeah, that, that was, in terms of media stories of 2020, the, um, the rollout of Quibi isn't up there as a shining success. A $1.5 billion uh, startup failure. <laughs> it's remarkable. Yeah, so anyway, I, basically I thought that I was going to be rolling into a TV deal. You know, I thought I was going to be doing what a lot of filmmaker collaborative members probably thought they were going to be doing, making a movie, making a, a television series, any something with video and all of that. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's in, in, uh, in moments like, like this, there's always an opportunity for storytelling. And I think what we're all really fortunate is that, new um, forms, some forms that have been out there for a long time, but new forms were available to us through technological advances like Zoom, which is allowing you and I to see each other right now. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has certainly been the year, euphemistically speaking, it's the year of the pivot. It's the year of (laughs) adaptation. And so many of the creatives that I have been speaking with, um, that's what they've been leaning upon. And that's what has been allowing them to innovate. Uh, Mm -hmm. through this, you know, crazy, crazy year. Uh, So you mentioned the cocktail conversations and want to let our listeners know that that is Michelle's very interesting, very engaging (laughs) podcast. I love the premise where you're sitting around with a handful of um, smart, 
uh, uh, good-humored folks, and you're enjoying a cocktail, and you're quite knowledgeable about the cocktails that you, that you're enjoying. So I think that that sort of adds to the um, the organic nature of the conversation. Um, but I want to back up just a little bit and talk about your career as a journalist, as a documentary filmmaker, as a novelist, and talk about how all of that led you to where we are now with you being the host of the ever-expanding Cocktail Conversations empire. I like it. I like this idea of an empire. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't? (laughs) I'm like, woo, I like this. Um, So where do do you want to start? (laughs) So um, which came first? You you, you started uh, in in the field of journalism. Well, you know, I, I always wrote um, when I was growing up in Orange County, California, I really wanted to be the, the great American novelist. And I I actually sent my um, I wrote my first book, if you want to call it that, when I was seven. It was called Amazing. Kitty. It was wow. very, very intricate. You know, I mean, you know, I think Kitty had a boyfriend named Almanzo, which tells you that I was reading Little House on the Prairie. And um, anyway, I ended up writing. I taught myself how to type on my mom's uh, uh manual typewriter. And when I was 11 years old, I sent a book off to Harper and Rowe, which was the publisher of the Little House books. And they wrote back and said, this is the best book by an 11 year old we've ever read. (laughs) And they wrote a very encouraging letter. So what this really started was from the age of 11 onward, I would write something and I would send it off. I was never waiting to find out what people thought. Um, I, you know, people telling me something was terrible never bothered me. And believe me, I've been told by plenty of people that some of the stuff I've done is terrible. Um, when I was in high school, I wrote a play and my, I took it to my drama teacher and I said, what do you think? And she burned it. Um, <laughs> and this is back in the day when you had one copy, okay? This, you were typing and maybe you oh, had a car. literally burned it. This one. Literally burn it. No, she said, she goes, do you want me to, to be honest or do you want me to lie to you? And that's never the way to start a feedback conversation, right? If you're Talk creative. About tough love. Yeah. And I said, well, I want you to tell me the truth. And she lit a match and she burned it, dropped in the trash can and said, start over, write what you know. And I have never forgotten that. <laughs> yeah, I would think that would leave an impression. And and had you been um, had you been made of less stern stuff, that might have squelched your dream right there. Well, I still remember the plot of that play, and it was probably a really good idea that she burned it because it was set. And I have no idea why I did this. It was set in the Depression at a box factory in Los Angeles. I know nothing about the Depression, box factories, or LA, and yet that was what I wrote about. So it's probably best that it's literally was doing some time travel. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you got you got over that. that okay, yeah. Burn. So, so my father eventually points out to me, um, you know what, honey, I think it's great that you want to write books, but you do not have a trust fund, so you need to figure out a way to support yourself. So, I, I studied journalism in college, and um, interestingly, although I worked in journalism. Um, while I was in college, I went to Northwestern and I really, uh, very fortunately, got a job as a sports writer at the Chicago Tribune. And that was just total happenstance, right time, right place for me to send a letter saying, you know, can I, there used to be a job where you collected sports scores. You could sit there at the desk. This is pre-internet and somebody would call in uh, the scores of all the high school football games. And I knew that this job existed and I thought, well, they must need somebody for that because it's a crap job, but you can earn a little bit. So 
So I called, I sent an email or not email. Sorry. I sent a snail mail, a letter, my resume and the editor, the new editor, um, Dick Leslie, who was his name at the trip called me and said, you know, do you want to write sports? And I, my first things I wrote were, um, uh, prep sports stories. And then they just kind of kept me going. But at the end of this, I kind of had this really nice sports writing career started. I interned at Sports Illustrated for kids. And um, at the time, if you, I don't know if you subscribed to Sports Illustrated, but it used Many to, it was amazing. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. there was a wonderful story by Frank DeFord called The Boxer and the Blonde. And I, to this day, I, I think about the story. You can find it online. I highly urge your listeners to, to read it. I can't believe that hasn't been made into a movie. It was amazing. Anyway. Uh, yeah, DeFord, DeFord was most definitely, he was a writer. He was a yes. writer with a capital W. Yes. I mean, it was, it used to be like some of the most beautiful writing you ever read was in, it was in SI. And, um, but that's not what I did after college. I, uh, I was finishing my, I, I, I was finishing my degree and I was in DC at the time, which is part of the Northwestern program. And I looked at everyone on the Capitol Hill and thought that looks like fun. And I decided to get a job in politics. And so 300 resumes went out and I got a job as a communications director for US congressman. And I will always advise new grads, do your first job for your first job, do something where you're just learning. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, um, that job cast the rest of my career. It was incredible. So say a little bit more about that. What, what were a few of the uh, lessons that you've carried forth from that? Well, one of the first things that they had you do back then, I don't know if they still do it. And I have serious uh, questions. I, I, I believe that they probably don't based upon some of the stuff I've seen um, happen in, on Capitol Hill these days. But what it used to happen was you, if you were hired, you got immediately sent to um, the Library of Congress. And for about a week, they put you through your paces. and They taught you everything there was to know about what government can and cannot do for you, um, how to read legislation, how to write legislation. It was uh, it was really fascinating. You had to really learn the Constitution. You had to, even if you didn't have a, a legal background or a poli sci background, you very quickly were given the tools um, to get there. And I was there at a time when both parties talked to one another. And I worked for um, a, a conservative Democrat from Texas, uh, Pete Guerin, who went on to be President Bush and then President Obama's Secretary of the Army. But I met uh, people from all around the country and I, who were all young. Every, no one had money. <laughs> we're all living in these group homes and we all have so much fun together. And I think about that time period. So this is 1993 to 1997, basically. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, members of Congress also talked to one another. You had a lot of what we would now call moderates who were there. And I, you know, one of the big takeaways I, I took from all of this was um, the art of the possible. And also, I began to see the very beginning seeds of what I've now, um, now been calling the anger industrial complex, which is, of course, the driving force of this podcast to be the antithesis of that. But you saw the beginnings of that. And I remember being very, very disturbed 
I just had no idea that, uh, you know, my, the rest of my career, how it would unfurl, um, and where, how, how much of this I would be on the front lines of, but it really, it started on the Hill. Uh, honestly, it started with Newt Gingrich when he became speaker and there were a lot of other elements to it. It's not just Gingrich. It's not one person that can get that thing going. Correct. And then from there, I actually did get a book published. Um, I, my first book was about young people in politics and that brought me to New York city, brought me to the New York times. And ultimately, um, being on the, uh, the book, uh, publicity campaign for that book is what got me on television. And that's how I got discovered, um, by CNN. And that led to my job on, uh, uh, as a political analyst for the 2000 election. So there were all these little steps when you were, uh, on CNN. So, you know, you come from the world of politics and then writing about the world of politics and then there is that synergy between obviously politics and the media. And around that time, when you were on CNN, did you get the sense that uh, sowing a bit of division was part of a business model? So when I first got there, I was um, the political analyst for headline news for the 2000 election. And then I got hired full time to be the political anchor. And when I was there for 2000, Ted Turner was still in charge. Uh, He still owned it. Then you had the AOL Time Warner merger, which of course made people into, as they call themselves, AOL penny heirs. Um, and a lot of people were very disgruntled about that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that happened, and I, I absolutely find naming names here, um, midway through, I would say in my first year, and this is before 9-11 happened, um, in my first year, Walter Isaacson was the president of CNN. Here is a man with zero background in broadcast journalism. Yeah, now, one of the things- Time Magazine, correct? Yeah, I came from Time Magazine and he was a very good editor, brought on some very interesting talent, nurtured that talent. Um, so, but you know, when I, I, I didn't have a broadcast background when I started, one of the things I did was I walked around and asked for advice. And I will also, always tell people, always ask for advice. The only person who gave me advice was, uh, Garrick Utley. I don't know if you remember Garrick Utley. Absolutely. NBC. Yeah. NBC, um, great foreign correspondent. He also hosted Meet the Press a few times and he was in his late sixties at this point and was no longer with NBC. Obviously he was at CNN and this was the sort of the final um, part of his broadcast career and they weren't using him that much, but he took me into his office and he's like, I'm going to walk you through how broadcast journalism works. And we are going to start with the very beginnings. And one of the lessons he taught me right away was how to use silence. So that's a trick I use on, um, on all of the anything broadcast related that I do now or any film is there's always silence used as a device at a certain point, uh, which is always my homage to, to Garrick. So, uh, you know, there was, there was some very, very good talent at CNN at the time and some, you know, the wise men and wise women of journalism and they were systemically let go. Um, there was a real push to bring on young talent, which is fine. But what you have to do, of course, is bring on uh, talent and nurture that talent. And that, which happened for me, stopped happening. But Walter Isaacson, I will never forget this, put out the word at the network, he liked debates. And instead of reporting, what you started to see were talking heads, debating each other. And it was sometimes like six people. Eventually, they got it down to, I think, four and then three but this begins the um, crossfire. 
Yeah. Well, Crossfire, no, this is like just uh, Crossfire was at least a program. I might, oh, this, they would literally just put like the little boxes, you know, like the heads, oh, you know, people okay. talking. Yeah. So when you talk about literal talking, talking heads, heads, literal talking heads. And so this became more and more and more of the programming because they were trying to, he was trying to compete against uh, Fox, right? Which was started, which was in the nascent days, but it was getting uh, bigger and bigger and bigger. And so it stopped being a lot about stopped being about reporting and being a lot more. I mean, I remember being called into the offices and being told to have more of my California slang in my reporting. I had worked so hard to lose the California accent and also to be taken seriously. And they were asking me to bring all this stuff back to win the ratings war. Well, you know, I think that that's the beginning of when broadcast journalism, at least, and this is my opinion, but you probably could really trace it back to that. It's the beginning of it being less about that public service of informing and more about entertaining. I've often heard that, you know, during the heyday of your, essentially your three networks, ABC, CBS, uh, NBC, the news divisions, whether it was, you know, Cronkite or Ted Koppel, Peter Jennings, uh, Tom Brokaw, the the news divisions were always just embraced as a loss leader mm-hmm. that, that the networks looked at the news division as, well, this, this is sort of where we uh, put our values. This is, this is sort of, you know, we'll, we'll take the hit for the news not being profitable, but with the rise of cable television, you know, the 24 seven, uh, all they were was news. So they became more profit oriented and more, you know, ratings driven for advertisers, et cetera. Um, Did you see a connection? Was that explicit connection ever made? Uh, Absolutely. Oh, totally. Because one of the things, so you're, you're pointing out the fact that there had been a fairness doctrine, right? The fairness doctrine existed until 1983, which meant that, okay, in exchange for you, ABC, NBC, CBS, using the public airwaves. So the stuff that your taxpayer dollars developed and the government developed, you then have to show both sides and you have to have a public service component. So you actually had a job. Clarence Page actually would talk talk to me about this. His first job in broadcast wasn't as a broadcast journalist. It was to be the community liaison. So you had, um, even for local news, you had somebody who's job was to make sure you reached out to all the local government officials and had that, and, and had that relationship. So it was actually part of why you got to use um, the airwaves. And then as soon as the fair and, and the disintegration or dismantling of the fairness doctrine, a lot of times that falls on, you know, since it happened during Ronald Reagan's presidency, everyone says it's Reagan did it, but he's not the one who did it, believe it or not, began under Jimmy Carter's presidency. So, and then of course, in the early eighties, that's when CNN comes in. Right. Right. And Mm -hmm. so then as soon as the fairness doctrine goes away, uh, corporations could start buying these news divisions and they did, they bought the big network. So then you had GE, you had Disney, and then it becomes a commodity. So what happens when you have a commodity, you got to pay your shareholders and news actually does earn money because it's not that expensive to make compared to a television series or something. So it made money for people and for shareholders and Mm then um, became absolutely was not interesting for those shareholders to have investigative pieces or anything like that. You know, the stuff that informs the public, protects the public, makes us, you know, the fourth branch of government. And some people like to say that all started to disintegrate and, and, and the trust that people put in us. 
Have you been thinking about how, so now we're into what, uh, 20, 30 years into this, as, as you so aptly describe it, the anger industrial complex, uh, where the, the goal does seem to be let's, let's rile them up, let's keep them agitated, uh, as opposed to fully informed. Have you been surprised at all that, you know, particularly in this age of where disruption is all, that there hasn't really been a well-funded effort to sort of program counter to that? I don't think people know how to do it yet, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, we have been doing this for so long. Now, one of the things, one of the interesting phrases I heard the other day, and I actually incorporated this into that, uh, the latest episode, was this idea that there, uh, of, there's an interest in keeping us in fight or flight. Sure. And fight or flight is, uh, comes as a result of trauma, right? And um, post-traumatic stress disorder being a great example of that. And um, I was diagnosed with that for, after you know, doing the, uh, the Uncondemned, which is a documentary I did with Filmmakers Collaborative as my fiscal sponsor. And, um, you know, fight or flight... There's a whole there's a whole array of things that come with that. You know, you don't sleep very well. You can have panic attacks. Um, you're you're in a constant state of agitation. You are quick to anger. You're very quick to get upset. Um, and the fact, and if you look at when I started looking at it that way, I was like, wow, we've actually been kept in this state for quite some time. And then your body just becomes used to the trauma. And I think that we're just used to being in this state and to counter program to that. It's, these are the early days of trying to figure out those, those ways to do so. Um, and I'm, I, based upon the response, we've only dropped a few episodes of the cocktail conversations, but based on the earlier response, people have contacted me. I think that people are starting to think about how do we do the antithesis of this? Um, But we got a long road ahead of us because I'll give you an example. There's an article that ran in the New York times a couple weeks ago talking about CNN and MSNBC being worried about their ratings for next year now that Trump's no longer going to be president. And um, the sentence was there was some concern about um, about the incoming, the new incoming uh, CEO of CNN saying that he didn't uh, understand the blood sport of covering politics in a divided nation. And this is a New York Times reporter using those words, the blood sport of covering politics in a divided nation. I was like, if you're calling it a blood sport, no wonder it's a divided nation. Yeah, exactly. And the blood sport part would seem to indicate, and I I think this is often something that frustrates people, is that, you know, wind the clock back to say mid-October or so, the media interests that were stoking as much division as possible, regardless of who won in November, they weren't losing their jobs. They were still going to be connected. They were still going to be among the the 1% or 5% or where they're the upper echelon. So it, in a way, it is a sport. It is a game. And I can remember thinking earlier this year, probably, you know, idealistically, that with the whole uh, COVID pandemic, well, this will be that 9-11 type moment where um, the greater good we're going to band together and you know, all in service of the greater good. But no sooner was COVID identified than the factions decided, well, how do we game this? How do we, how do we create division around this? So we're now at a point where do we truly live in a society where we cannot agree on what objective reality is? 
Well, we obviously can't. I mean, how many, how many emails have you gotten from friends of yours? Um, people who you believe are knowledgeable, sane people who have contacted you with conspiracy theories. Right. And I mean, I'm contacted every day. I've got, you know, pandemic. Yeah. Pandemic. I've got, I've got like five texts this morning from people who were, are questioning, um, what was the latest one I heard that like arrest warrants were sent out, you know, at a funeral for, uh, HW Bush. And I was like, wait, what? Um, like stop it. You know, like this isn't, uh, but the thing is, is that, and this was also pointed out, um, the other day that the entire world had the coronavirus um, and nobody worked together, right. <laughs> which is an extraordinary thing to think about. We can work together for war, but not work together on, on how to approach this. When every single country had a vested interest in trying to get everyone healthy. I mean, we have a, we exist in a world where problems that happen here have a, an effect and happen on the other side of the world as well, because of trade, because of all these other things. And yet we couldn't manage to work together uh, on the pandemic. And that is very concerning. Yeah. There's a 30,000 word piece in the latest New Yorker by Lawrence Wright called the plague year. And I, I mean, it'll probably take me half the year to read it, but it's um, it's touching upon that exact, that exact point that you're, that you're making. And in terms of the, uh, I haven't even read that article yet. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so that's well, in the zeitgeist. In. I mean, I know, but, 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 but this just points out that it is in the zeitgeist. We are starting to think about this. And, you know, the fact is that, um, and this is one of the things I said in the director's note for the, for the podcast, it's like, we have really big challenges ahead of us. Like this, yeah. this is just the beginning. And um, if, if we don't learn how to work together, we are not going to make it. When I was listening to your podcast and reading about the premise and, and your ambitions for it, it reminded me of back in the days when people sort of built their primetime television watching around again, the three major networks. And oftentimes you would hear about these critically acclaimed programs that didn't get high ratings, but the networks would stick with them because they, the demographics of the folks that tuned in were appealing to advertisers. And it all, it's made me think for a number of years now that there's got to be, and, I, and I'm sure your podcast is gonna, is gonna serve as a tool to um, ferret these people out. There's got to be that audience that says, okay, enough. I, I'm tired of just, anger is a really impotent emotion. If, if, if I am just continually agitated and angry, I'm no more informed than I was at the top of the hour. So when I think of a disruptor into this uh, anger industrial complex, I do wonder if maybe in the beginning there's modest numbers, but influential numbers from a consumer standpoint of people that say, you know, um, take a chance on talking to me like an adult who can handle a certain degree of ambiguity. Am I, am I dreaming, Michelle? I don't think you're dreaming at all. I think that that's, that's starting to happen. I mean, it based upon even what the response that we've gotten, again, we've got four episodes out right now. And I would say that, you know, have we hit really big numbers yet? No, but we only have four episodes out. Um, but the people who are listening, who are contacting me are really high level people. And that's been very interesting that those are the first people to, to gravitate. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll get other, other folks. One of the th- things we tried to do, um, and I say this, 
this repeatedly is like, we will make it safe for you to talk to each other again. And, um, and I thought, well, the reason why, you know, cocktails, wine and all that stuff are, are involved is because, you know, I, I, what I've noticed whenever I traveled and done, I've done these crazy stories and assignments, the, the one thing that kind of brings people together is a glass of wine or a meal. And it's a pretty universal thing. Um, and I was, I mean, listen, I, I was in Afghanistan in like Taliban country. Um, and the Taliban actually dug up the wine they made and hid from other members of the Taliban because they heard I liked wine. I was like, okay, and here's where I die. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I had, I had Tunisian wine during Ramadan, you know, with uh, a family where all of a sudden safe Qaddafi showed up and I thought, okay, and now we die. But no, he had a glass of wine too. Of course, you know, he's down in prison and, you know, but, uh, but it's, you know, it's, there are, there are, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a throwback to when we could relax and have these moments together and you could actually have, um, active listening and, and hear something from somebody else. I mean, I, I, you know, we, the fact that we're so quick to jump on, um, each other and argue. It's, uh, I, it's exhausting is what it is. Anger is an exhausting emotion. Um, it, it, and yeah, it, it, it really is. And it, and it, it, it does feel to me that, you know, the promise of uh, digital media, particularly the social media platforms, what it, that it was going to, you know, we're going to be one big world. Mm. We're going to share the human experience. And when you talk about a shared human experience, what you're touching upon is that very thing that, there is that, you know, there's a reason I think that back in the day when we walked into bars, almost all, almost any bar you went to, you know, with certain exceptions, of course, like the first noise you heard was conversation and laughter. Mm-hmm. So you would get the sense that, okay, this is not where anger predominates. And, and this is probably an environment where not everybody is thinking the same thing, but, you know, they're united in this common human experience and, you don't have to be defensive. You just have to be there. Somebody you're, you're seeking out the company of others. And I, I, I think that's an, an ingenious premise. Well, uh, thank you. For, uh, for uh, the podcast. Well, you know, we also keep it fairly short about 15 minutes because that's usually the amount of time you're going to spend on a topic right before you move on to something else and right. move on to another group of people to talk to. Um, and I think like, again, like these tools, I mean, I have ambitions for where to build this to. And, that's what uh, I'm interested in. So as a, as a <laughs> sort of a media renaissance woman, um, I know that, or I'm going to presume that you're thinking about, you know, the, the podcast as one platform right now. Tell me about your vision for how this expands and grows. So one of the things, because everybody always asks you, you know, when you have a movie that comes out, one of the questions they say is, oh, what's next? You know, it's really hard to make a film. It's really hard. I mean, you know this, you, the, your community, our community, uh, Filmmakers Collaborative knows how difficult it is. Yeah. And I had, um, of course, uh, I think you're aware of it. I know that um, Filmmakers Collaborative had, was incredibly supportive when my um, co-director, Nick Lavelle, died very tragically in a car accident. Um, and we had to finish the film. And this is and your co-director of the, the film the Uncondemned. Uncondemned. And just the, lo- yes. the log line on Uncondemned. Oh, I'm so good at, at, at this log line. Um, the Uncondemned is 
a legislative thriller about a mismatched group of young lawyers and activists who come together from around the world in 1997 to prosecute for the first time in history rape as an international crime of war. It had actually been a crime of war since 1919, but it took nearly 80 years and a 31-year-old former deputy district attorney in the hardcore gang unit of Los Angeles and a 27-year-old newly minted law school graduate and three incredibly brave Rwandan women who stepped forward amid a wave of witness assassinations in order to testify for the first time in Vegas. Okay, you do have that down. (laughs) I said it a lot. We got it. We, 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 you know, I'm really proud of that film. I'm proud of the journey that it's still on. Um, It's the best thing I've ever written and done. But, you know, when, when Nick, um, when he died in this car accident, um, I remember thinking, you know, it's, you got to be careful with the stories you choose to put out there in the world because it could be the last thing you do. So I don't want to be a director for hire. I don't want to be a producer for hire. I want to do the stories I want to do. So, okay, well, that's nice, but you got to make a living. So the idea really after spending seven years um, looking and examining mass violence, um, that story came from uh, as a result of the uh, prosecutions from the Rwandan genocide. But as the movie made its way around the world, I met more and more and more people who were involved in or had witnessed or had prosecuted or survived great mass violence. And, um, you know, you start to get worried when you see that there are some things that they all share. And then I, I was asked by the USC Shoah Foundation to investigate um, the possibility of war crimes perpetrated on the Rohingya in Myanmar. And so I was sent to Bangladesh to interview many of those survivors. So um, I became very concerned about how this stuff happens. The first step of othering, which is the first step of mass violence, you start to um, create a division. Many times it's a false division. Many times it's created because the people or the organizations um, that want to create that division have an economic interest and or they want to preserve their own power. Uh, You know, often those things go together. And so there's um, language is deployed, language of dehumanization. And, um, you know, and then the very next thing that happens is usually an uptick in misogynistic uh, violence or language. And then there's a whole cascade of other things. So one of the things uh, that, you know, that's been unleashed, that's very concerning. And look, I I don't want to what about or anything like that. I think we see it on at at every possible uh, and every possible landing of the political and ideological spectrum, we're seeing this language deployed. Um, You know, one of the things that we talked about in the the podcast is the fact that it's already measured by academics that um, in terms of polarization, effective polarization, which is how much you dislike a member of the opposite party Mm -hmm. is off the charts and has been increasing since over the last, you know, 30 years. But ideological polarization, which is how much you actually disagree on a policy issue, hasn't really moved. So basically we hate each other more, but we don't disagree with each other more. And so these are things that we have to get people talking about. And this brings me to, of course, where like, okay, a podcast is fine, but it's not enough. And one, one of the things that we are already talking about and we're laying the groundwork for are bringing people together um, once we can travel, right? But we are talking about um, having a, a conference on the anger industrial complex this time next year. Um, you know, hopefully a nap or someplace fun where we can give people a glass of wine. Um, and we'll have, we'll have some digital conferences 
conferences in the meantime. It, it, but you know, the idea is we do have to actually have more than just programming. It has to be an interactive experience. We have to actually be talking to one another about these ideas that are being put forward. Yeah, I see. Um, uh, I see great potential in this, and particularly uh, because the initiative is being run by someone like someone your, <laughs> like yourself, who you know, you, you know, you've. Uh, you've been a participant in so many aspects of, you know, what, what creates and drives media conversations. Um, so somebody who has an ambition beyond just profit, not that there's nothing wrong with profit, but <laughs> right. beyond just profit. I think that, you know, a, a phrase that we often come back to when, I, when I'm having conversations with uh, filmmakers and creatives is the ability to do good and do well. It yes. shouldn't have to be, you know, all of one or the other. So I am going to look forward to listening to more of the cocktail conversations and to keeping track of um, how this initiative grows and expands. And I would love it if you could come back uh, in six months or so and chat with us and uh, let us uh, let us know the latest. Yeah, well, you should be on the show because the good news for you is when you're on it, we send you wine. Okay, well, definitely. <laughs> Let me check my calendar. I'm available uh, anytime. Sometimes we actually create a drink for it too. We're actually, we have this evolutionary anthropologist that that episode is coming out in three weeks and we're actually creating a, a drink based on her. So I called her the other day to talk to her about, you know, how would you structure this cocktail? And she's thinking, what the hell are you talking about? So we do actually tend to have a lot of fun with all oh, of that I love stuff. It. I, I can't mean, wait to listen to that. You know, you, you can change the world and have fun doing it. You know, I, I like that. I like that. that. That's a motto right there. There's a log line that I won't forget. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. I love that idea the log line. Michelle Mitchell, thank you for your time. I wish you a happy and healthy and safe new year. And I look forward to talking to you real soon. Me too. I look forward to that as well. Thank you so much for having me on and happy new year. Okay. Take care. Bye.